Hello and welcome to another episode of Can't Make This Up. I'm your host, Kevin. I'm very glad to have you today. I hope you're all settling into fall, which is upon us. Football's back on TV. Oktoberfest is in the stores. Pumpkin spice lattes at Starbucks. The weather's getting cooler. Uh, for a lot of people, this is their favorite season season of the year. Uh, if you're one of them, congratulations. If you're a summer person like me, we kind of hate the rest of you. Uh, today's episode, we're doing something that I've wanted to do for a while, but haven't been able to find the right book. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, indigenous history. We're going to look at uh, some history from the perspective of Native Americans. Uh, my author today is, uh, my guest is Mark Lee Gardner. Uh, he is a historian of the American West, and he joins me to talk about his recent book, The Earth is All That Lasts. Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and The Last Stand of the Great Sioux Nation. Uh, Mark is an authority on the American West. He's been writing on it uh, for uh, well over a decade. Uh, He's worked with the National Park Service out West. He's a regular um, contributor uh, to several series uh, such as PBS American Experience, um, the Travel Channel, BBC and so forth to comment on the history of the American West. So he has a lot of interesting things to share with us uh, about the history uh, in Wyoming uh, and confrontations between uh, the expanding United States and the indigenous peoples who call the West their home. Um, Of course, if you are Uh, new to the podcast, just checking us out for the first time. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Uh, If you've listened to a few episodes and you like it, uh, please do me a favor. Please like, uh, like this, subscribe to it uh, on whatever you're listening to. Um, Please leave a review uh, and rate it. That's incredibly helpful. I can't tell you how helpful that is. Uh, And then if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on most of the platforms uh, at CMTU history. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever. Uh, And then if you want to follow the show on YouTube, it's available there as well for people who like to uh, listen via YouTube. All right. Well, on to my interview uh, with Mark Lee Gardner. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history you learned in school we're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools and stories that are just too crazy to believe the stranger than fiction and super unique you are listening to can't make this up i'm your host kevin and i'm joined today by mark gardner mark how are you i'm doing great kevin Uh, thanks for having me on your podcast well, thanks for taking the time to join us. Um, if you'd be so kind, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an independent author and historian. Uh, my interests are the Trans-Mississippi West, and it's been that way since I've been a child. I was born and raised in Missouri, in Jesse James country, um, and then moved out here into Colorado uh, to marry my lovely wife in the early 1980s. And I've been uh, doing all kinds of uh, work. Uh, previously did uh, some writings for the National Park Service, some of their guidebooks at different uh, Western historic sites and uh, uh, started doing these really big books uh, about uh, 10 years ago. It started with uh, 
a dual biography of Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett called To Hell on a Fast Horse. That's a good name for a biography. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you kind of deal with topics there in the, the, the mountain regions and the middle west of the country. Yeah, everything, you know, really, Kevin, uh, I kind of look west of the Mississippi uh, is fair game for me. And, and, and like I said, since I was a kid, that's something that's always interested me. Um, my father, uh, like I said, I was born and raised in Missouri. My father was a logger, um, an independent logger. He went out and cut maples and oaks and walnuts. And uh, he had a sawmill along a little blacktop road north of the town where I grew up in and, and for a while anyway. And so, but he always made sure uh, in the summer to take at least a week or two off and he would take the family, uh, my mom and my two sisters, on a vacation. And we probably hit every Western fort, museum, <laughs> uh, historic site uh, from uh, Jesse James' uh, home in St. Joe where he was killed to the Little Bighorn Battlefield. Um, so uh, I think that definitely instilled in me a sense of the past and of these really fascinating larger-than-life people that lived in the places where I lived even uh, in Missouri and elsewhere. And uh, I've been kind of hung up on, on these historical figures ever since. Uh, this gives me a lot of hope because uh, I drag my kids to uh, historic uh, sites and you know the national parks and uh, uh, you know they don't seem to be interested all the time, but uh, this gives me hope that maybe, uh, maybe that'll change when they get older. I, I think it will. I mean, I do think it rubs off. And, you know, my my parents collected antiques. And I also, my dad was a huge collector of uh, uh, Indian arrowheads. And uh, he would take us kids out uh, in the spring when the farmers uh, got the fields ready to plant. And we'd go out after a rain and look for flint chips and arrowheads. And so, yeah, we were really history oriented. I mean, uh, they hit all kinds of antique farm auctions too. And and that again, it's like those, those tangible things that you can touch. I mean, antique, something that was over a hundred years old and there's just a fascination with historical objects. And, uh, and they were into all of that stuff. And, uh, so, and, I, and I am too. Well, here you are today, you're writing history books. Uh, and the one we're gonna talk about today is your most recent, uh, The Earth is All That Lasts, Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and the last stand of the great Sioux Nation. Um, first thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, first, what, what does your title mean? That's an interesting title. Uh, and then you've, you've kind of written a dual biography here from uh, a Native American perspective. Um, did that present any research challenges? Yes, well, so your first question, um, and Kevin, you're not the first one to ask this question, uh, but um, the earth is all that lasts. Uh, uh, was like, uh, you would call it a rallying cry. Um, uh, when warriors went into battle, uh, whether it's against Euro-Americans or, or uh, other native nations, um, you know, leaders would shout things like, which means, come on, uh, you know, uh, today is a good day to die. Um, the earth is all that lasts. And the point of this being is that you're not gonna live forever. Uh, you know, our time on this place is limited. So sell your lives dearly, uh, protect our families, protect our children. Only the earth lasts. Uh, you're not going to last forever. So 
Um, in fact, one of the quotes I use in the book from Luther Standing Bear uh, was the words of wisdom given from a father to his son. And he said, son, I never want to see you grow up to be an old man. I want you to die on the battlefield. That's the way a Lakota dies. Um, so again, the earth is all that lasts. Uh, uh, today is a good day to die. Brave up. These are rallying cries to, to instill bravery and uh, valor uh, amongst their fellow warriors. Now, your second question about the challenges of writing on another culture and attempting to tell their story from their perspective uh, were immense. Um, I had to immerse myself in all the Lakota uh, literature and touching various aspects, whether it was religion, uh, politics, uh, social. Um, and fortunately, there's a lot of that literature out there. Uh, scholars have been studying the Lakotas, and I should say that Lakotas have been studying the Lakotas. It's not just uh, white scholars, but Lakotas, there's also good books uh, by Lakota historians as well um, that have recorded their culture and their history. Um, but probably my biggest, um, the thing that helped me the most in bridging that cultural divide were the actual oral histories that were taken with people that knew Sitting Bull, that were related to Sitting Bull, people that were related and knew Crazy Horse. In fact, I made it a point, I did not interview living Lakotas uh, because I wanted to talk, I mean, I wanted to use resources, uh, primary sources of those who actually knew these men and who were eyewitnesses to some of their feats. And fortunately, there's really a lot of those out there. Uh, some of these early historians and anthropologists in the late 1920s and early 1930s interviewed these living uh, Lakotas, both women and men, uh, extensively. In fact, um, one author, Walter Campbell, who went by the pen name Stanley Vestal, uh, he went up to the Standing Rock Reservations, the Cheyenne River Reservation, and interviewed Sitting Bull's nephews, One Bull and White Bull, and also other many other aged uh, Lakotas. And all his notebooks have been preserved at, their, at the University of Oklahoma. And even better, they've been digitized. So you, Kevin, could go online. And if I cite uh, a certain interview, you can go and double check me <laughs> and uh, look at. Um, well, good. It's, it sounds like there was you've had quite a. Uh, um treasure trove of, of resources and documents to uh, bridge the gap between, uh, you know, modern American culture and then Lakota culture. Yes, fortunately so. Um, also, another thing that um, today's historians have access to that they didn't, you know, 20 years ago is um, this technology uh, that allows us access to millions of pages of 19th century newspapers. Um, there are now at least four or five uh, websites devoted to uh, the scanning uh, and uh, posting uh, of these historic newspapers. And so I found a number of interviews with uh, Lakota warriors who fought in various fights, uh, including, of course, the Little Bighorn, and uh, that were published in some obscure newspapers that uh, previously you would have had no clue that these things existed. But because you can search these newspapers, mm -hmm. um, I, like I said, I, I found several accounts and, and letters also uh, from soldiers 
in some of these encounters because they would they would write a letter home and then their relative would take it to the paper and the paper would put, hey, I got this thing from my son, Lieutenant so-and-so, and it's about this battle up on the Yellowstone. And so, yeah, so it was uh, it was really fun to be able to discover some of these, some of this new information that that added to the story. That's great. That, that, that's a lot of fun. That's great. Um, all right, well, then what can you tell us about the Lakota people and the Sioux Nation? Well, um, the Lakota Nation itself, uh, I think what fascinates me most is um, this, you know, this really dynamic and um, challenging era for them of the 19th century. Uh, it was a time where uh, their culture would just uh, blossomed. Uh, and I'm speaking of the horse culture. Uh, you know, they hadn't had the horses forever. The horses were introduced by the Spaniards and eventually Lakotas traded and for horses and captured horses. Um, but before the horse, um, you know, they traveled on foot. They had dogs that helped pack their, their meager belongings and they uh, uh, raised um, uh, small uh, patches of crops. Uh, but the horse changed everything for them like it did lots of uh, uh, of these northern nations, uh, or these Great Plains nations, I should say, um, and it allowed them to cover vast distances, and now they could follow the buffalo herds, and wherever the buffalo went, they could move their camps, and, uh, you know, they, uh, many of their, uh, clo their clothing, their lodging uh, depended on the buffalo. Their, 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 uh, their lodges were made out of buffalo hide, um, their tools, are made from bones of buffalo and and uh so it all around, revolved around this buffalo culture and so it was a like i said it was a period in the 19th century where it really had had blossomed and come into a, a, a really a, a, a beautiful thing um but at the same time the lakotas are faced with their most or their greatest threat and that's the encroachment of euro americans uh, who, uh, you know, you've got Lewis and Clark, you know, going up, uh, what, 1802, um, up the Missouri. And of course, they, they meet these various tribes and they see the Lakotas and the Lakotas are full horsebone, horsebound uh, people by this time. Um, but then within just years, we see a flood of Euro-Americans uh, going across into the plains. At first, it's just traders um, and the Lakotas are, are good with that because they're getting things, manufactured items that, uh, that they can use if they want, whether it's uh, glass mead, beads made in Italy or brass uh, kettles that they can use for cooking, uh, scarlet uh, wool blankets, those kinds of things they wanted to trade for. And, and they often welcomed traders. But when we started getting Oregon Trail travelers um, and uh, a real flood of people with the discovery of gold, in California, well, those people that are going across what became known as the Great Platte River Road, they're killing buffalo that the Lakotas are using to feed their people, as well as uh, the hides some um, that they can use for trade. That that impacts their lives, uh, and it just it's just a domino effect. After that, um, more and more whites uh, mean more and more conflict and uh, you know fighting to maintain their homeland which occupies most of the latter half of the 19th century, trying to stop that tide. And Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull emerge 
as the two most prominent leaders who are against any accommodations. They're against treaties. They're against reservations. They want to maintain what is theirs, and they want to maintain that culture. And uh, it was a tremendous, a tremendous challenge uh, that they tried to meet. Uh, so let, let's talk about them a little bit more, uh, Crazy Horse and, and Sitting Bull. Uh, I mean, when you read a, you know, like an American history textbook, uh, they kind of conveniently show up uh, just before the Battle of Little Bighorn and then conveniently leave a few paragraphs later. Um, tell us a little bit about who these, who these two individuals were as people. Yes, um, and I'll tell you, uh, I had studied this time period and um, what was happening in the Northern Plains quite a bit, but in the course of my research, I learned a lot, uh, and I, I discovered that I didn't know as much as I thought I did, and one of the things I found fascinating about Sitting Bull, and it, it goes to your point, um, we usually just read about him in connection with the Little Bighorn. Now, he was, at that time, uh, considered an old man chief. You know, he was 45 years old and he wasn't expected to fight. He was a holy man and uh, their leader uh, of the various groups that were camped there. But his career began as a warrior uh, and he had many, many famous encounters uh, and fights. Uh, they call them, uh, uh, you know, he had many coups, okay? So you can get a coup by touching an enemy, by killing an enemy, by capturing a, a female uh, of another tribe, capturing a horse. Um, he had many, many coups. He was a ferocious fighter. And we just don't picture Sitting Bull in that way because all the photos we have of him were made after his surrender, right? Um, or most of them anyway. Uh, so uh, he doesn't look like this fearsome warrior, uh, but he was. And that's, that's how you uh, uh, rose within the political structure of the Lakotas and the various bands um, was through your feats and through your bravery. And uh, especially, it was especially important if you weren't uh, the son of a chief, which Sitting Bull was not, and neither was Crazy Horse. So if you're not hereditary, uh, then you have to be even more, uh, you have to be demonstrative, demonstrative of your abilities and your bravery even more to create, to uh, get to those levels uh, within the Lakota nation. So Sitting Bull earned every step, you know, war chief, supreme chief, he earned all those different levels. And that was something that, that I wasn't really that familiar with and because I never really pictured him that way. Mm -hmm. um, he was born about 1831. Um, Crazy Horse is born about nine years later. Sitting Bull's uh, the Hunkpapa uh, sub-tribe uh, Crazy Horse is Oglala, but of course they're all Lakotas. And Crazy Horse, um, uh, he uh, is, I'm trying to think of the right word to use. To a lot of people, even his own people, he was peculiar um, in some ways. Uh, and it included his physical appearance. He was light-skinned. And more than one person commented that knew Crazy Horse that he resembled someone of mixed heritage. They called him in the 19th century mixed bloods. Uh, from all we know, his parents uh, were both Lakotas, but it was unusual, it was just an unusual light skin color that set him apart. And his hair was different. Uh, his hair was curly. And in fact, his early nickname was Curly because of his hair. So uh, those things kind of set him apart, his physical appearance, but also his personality. 
He was very reserved. He was modest um, as an adult and as a leader. Uh, he did not like to speak at council meetings. Um, and, you know, it's really hard as a biographer, and it was hard for people at the time uh, to understand his true essence. And, and I've said, um, and I've written that sometimes it seems like the only time he showed real emotion was on the battlefield. I mean, he was the ultimate warrior. Um, he had several horses shot out from under him, which was, you know, when you hear people say that, they say the same thing about Custer in the Civil War. And it was true. It's like Custer had several horses. Uh, you know, that's that's indicative of, of his bravery, the fact that he's out there in front. Um, the Crows said about Crazy Horse, says, we, we know Crazy Horse. We always saw him before we saw anybody else. He was always in the front. Uh, it was easy for us to recognize him. So, like I said, he was the ultimate warrior. Uh, he was uh, in that way. He was charismatic at the same time, mysterious, and he attracted men to him uh, that wanted to be led, that wanted to follow him. And again, he was not. He did not have a chief as a father. Uh, he gained his prestige through his own actions uh, on the battlefield. And so, what kind of uh, relationship was there between the two? According to the nephews of Sitting Bull, they were friends. We don't have a lot of words directly from Crazy Horace. As I mentioned, he didn't speak a lot, uh, didn't like to talk in council meetings, and he never really talked to any whites because he didn't go to treaties, treaty councils. Um, there was one source that we have uh, who lived in the camps. Uh, his name was Frank Gouard, and he lived in Sitting Bull's camps and Crazy Horse's camp, became good friends with both. So we do have uh, some insights from them. Um, but uh, as far as we know, uh, from uh, the, you know, the available sources, uh, they were friends. And it makes perfect sense because Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse really both had the same goals. And they were exactly to uh, protect their homeland and their people against white encroachment. I mean, they were violently opposed to accommodating uh, the whites. And like I said, they never touched the pen. That was the phrase used by Lakotas uh, because uh, most of them, I mean, they didn't know how to sign their name in English. So they would just make an X or a mark and they called it touching the pen. Well, neither Crazy Horse nor Sitting Bull ever touched the pen. So they were allies, uh, but in addition to being allies, uh, they were also uh, friends, at least according to uh, uh, Sitting Bull's nephews who were close to both those individuals. So as the growing United States expands westward and the, the Lakota leaders um, begin to see this as, as a threat to their livelihood, um, what, what's the first conflict uh, between the Lakota and, and um, the U.S. Army, um, I, I guess, which they called the Blue Coats? Uh, yes. And what effect did that have on, on these leaders? Well, um, probably the first really um, serious conflict uh, it happens on the Great Platte River Road or the Oregon, you know, also the Oregon California Trail. And I mentioned earlier about this flood of immigrants and this flood of immigrants brings lots of encounters and most of them, there's no consequences. Uh, you could call them peaceful. Um, but in 1854, uh, there was an incident over, of all things, a cow. Uh, it was a Mormon cow that apparently had strayed from a wagon train uh, there was a large Lakota village uh, nearby, and uh, they find this cow, and they butcher it. I guess the uh, owner goes back to find his cow and discovers that the Lakotas have killed it. Um, 
and uh, he complains at Fort Laramie, and there's a small military garrison there. Um, and unfortunately, there's a young uh, a lieutenant named Grattan, uh, fresh out of West Point, uh, who's just itching to fight Indians. And uh, the commanding officer makes a very poor choice in sending him and a detachment of about 29 uh, soldiers to go and retrieve or to go, you know, to punish the individuals who took this cow, right? Um, when they get there, this Grattan is just so obnoxious. He doesn't listen. There's an interpreter there. Um, and he's demanding to have the culprits uh, who, uh, you know, took the cow and killed it. And the leader is, is insulted, offended, and they weren't even a part of his band. So he really couldn't give up these individuals anyway. And he offered to pay for the cow or trade. Uh, and the lieutenant was having nothing of it and just escalated, escalated, escalated until, uh, um, you know, the warriors are gathering and gunfire breaks out. And the result is that uh, this uh, uh, excitable uh, lieutenant is killed and every one of his men with him. And after that, uh, the U.S. government, the U.S. Army is intent on punishing the Lakotas. And really from 1854, uh, there are interludes of peace, but it's essentially one uh, violent confrontation after another uh, for several decades, actually. Um, how uh, how would uh, you characterize this period? I mean, I, I guess we would call it the Indian Wars. Um, you know, what is the nature of this of this conflict? Um, well, um, uh, part of it is um, uh, the U.S. government wants to, you know, their goal is to keep open these uh, travel corridors. Uh, so we have the Oregon-California Trail. So we have, you know, a military post. Um, but when gold is discovered in various places in the West, then that brings hordes more of Euro-Americans. So gold is discovered in Montana and Idaho. And all of a sudden we have a rush of people. Uh, they're going up the Missouri River to Fort Benton. But then they discover a cross-country route from the region of Fort Laramie, and it's known as the Bozeman Cutoff. Uh, so you have all this traffic. Well, once you have all these uh, Euro-Americans going across this area, then you have the U.S. government starting to build more military posts in Lakota land. I mean, this is their hunting grounds. Uh, this is their territory. And uh, it was territory that was agreed by the U.S. government in a former treaty uh, to be theirs. And so we have violent encounters uh, you know, because they're so opposed to these forts. They don't want these forts there. Uh, so a lot of the conflict um, is kind of hit and run tactics, uh, hitting a wagon train uh, that's not well guarded, hitting a small military detachment. Uh, in 1866, uh, the Lakotas are really uh, uh, harassing a new post named Fort Phil Kearney in Wyoming, just south of Sher present day Sheridan, Wyoming. Uh, and they lure a detachment uh, of men away from the garrison, uh, a man named Fetterman and about 81 soldiers, both infantry and cavalry, and uh, they annihilate every one of them. And, uh, you know, nearly 2,000 warriors uh, are able to uh, ambush, essentially, uh, Fetterman and this detachment of both uh, cavalry and infantry, uh, 81 men, and annihilate them. 
And this uh, is part of what's known today as the quote Red Cloud War because the Lakota War Chief Red Cloud was heavily involved in this um, fighting to, uh, to force uh, these soldier forts to close down. And eventually uh, this war uh, results in uh, the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 where the US government does actually abandon these forts. Um, but it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory because uh, there's this thing called the railroad. <laughs> yeah, they don't necessarily need to use the Bozeman cutoff because these steel rails uh, after the Civil War are uh, rolling along uh, westward, and which allows uh, uh, more opportunities for Euro-Americans to come uh, across the West and into Lakota lands and to kill Lakota buffalo, use Lakota resources. Uh, so the forts were abandoned. Red Cloud touches the pin, um, but the, the clock is ticking, essentially. And then we have another gold discovery, and that's in the Black Hills in the 1870s, uh, which brings hordes more. Um, and this really, this Black Hills discovery leads to this ultimate conflict on the Little Bighorn River. Um, the whole reason that this fight occurs is that holdouts like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, who wouldn't sign a treaty, uh, the U.S. government grants, Ulysses Grant's administration, they decide, even though the Lakotas are abiding by the treaty and are residing on Lakota land, they're going to force them onto the reservation or they're going to kill them, and uh, then they're going to get them to sign the treaty. So they send these military columns, it's a three-pronged approach or, or um, strategy, uh, into the northern plains, and the whole uh, goal is, is to defeat Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, and their people as well as these other anti-treaty uh, leaders and force them onto the Great Sioux Reservation and then negotiate a treaty. Uh, so the Black Hills starts that because uh, the Black Hills were part of the Lakota's lands by the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 that Red Cloud signed, um, but uh, the US government decided uh, it's just too hard to keep these miners out of there. There's too much clamoring from Western settlers to open this up. And so uh, they're gonna use the military uh, to force these Lakotas to come to terms and eventually uh, agree to abandon uh, those hunting grounds in the Powder River country. Uh, now, one thing that I found interesting in the book was that there were these in, in United States uh, society, uh, there were these, um, I guess what we would call them more progressive uh, alternative ideas with how to approach the Lakota assimilation and a culture oh what they might not seem progressive today but well uh grant grant this goes back to grant's peace poly it was called the peace policy uh the grant administration thought or this was their plan if they could get the lakotas and it's not just the lakotas but other native nations to remain on a very fixed boundaries of a reservation um they would use humanitarian organizations, both religious, non-religious, to go about um, assimilating. And another word you find quite frequently in the literature is civilizing. Uh, most Euro-Americans thought the only way to quote, save the Indian was to civilize him, to make him a white man. And that meant, um, uh, you know, essentially uh, it's uh, cultural genocide, erasing everything about their culture. So their kids are going to be sent to boarding schools. They're going to be forbidden to speak their native language. In fact, the Indian Bureau 
their hard and fast policy, you will not be allowed to teach them their native language in the schools. It has to be English. Um, they uh, outlawed several religious practices that were key uh, to Lakota culture, like the Sundance, for example. This was this was considered by Euro Americans quote paganism, and so uh, the Sundance was outlawed. Um, uh, so uh, really, uh, keep them on the reservation, teach them to be farmers, uh, teach them to be white men, erase all vestiges of their traditional culture. And the Lakotas that went along with that idea were, as the, the word you use, were termed progressives. The Lakotas who did not go along with that, like Sitting Bull, were non-progressives and troublemakers. Uh, so that was the idea. Fortunately, very fortunately, that plan did not succeed entirely. And the Lakotas were able to maintain their language and uh, their culture to this day. But the Indian Bureau did their did their hardest uh, to make that happen. Um, now, I will say, Kevin, one of the interesting things that occurs uh, through this process of acculturation, assimilation, uh, some of these young students that are sent to the boarding schools, one of them is Carlisle in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, um, they, because they learn English and learn to write, read and write English, they become uh, these very important, important cultural intermediaries. And one of them is Luther Standing Bear. And in the late 20s and early 30s, he wrote two or three books. One's called um, uh, Land of the Spotted Eagle. Another is called My People the Sioux. And he teaches us about uh, not only the way they lived uh, prior to the white man, but also about their everyday lives and how they looked at the world. Um, one thing that, uh, that Luther Standing Bear talked about that I found very interesting and it's about visions and 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 seeking a vision was very important uh, to the uh, growth uh, to of young warriors to become a, a, a warrior you needed a vision uh, and that helped with your war medicine that it would help the holy man prepare things that would protect you in battle and uh, anyway um, Luther Stanley Bear said how you know white men scoffed at these notions that you could have a vision or that you could uh, get a message on the wind or that you might have, or you know, you might talk to a bird like Sitting Bull did or Sitting Bull's father got a message uh, and uh, heard something and understood that a buffalo was speaking to him, a bull buffalo. And he says, you know, uh, we were closer to nature than the white man and uh, they just don't understand. And they didn't. Um, and in my book, um, I don't question those events or incidents. Um, if Sitting Bull had an encounter with an eagle and something was shared with him that in Sitting Bull tells his story, it's not my place to question what happened. Um, uh, I wasn't there. Uh, and um, I, uh, I include those, those uh, different vignettes in the book because it's part of his story and it's part of what made Sitting Bull who he was and it's what made those visions or what uh made crazy horse who he was crazy horse was, for him yeah he was guided throughout his life uh by these visions well if people want to learn more about the the climax of your book which uh you know occurs in, around the 1870s um you know they can of course pick up a copy but one of the last things that i wanted to ask you is you know how is this period remembered today among 
descendants of the Lakota? Well, I think um, they're very proud um, of Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. Um, I uh, well, they they these two leaders serve as inspiration. Um, for example, um, you know they were inspiration during the Wounded Knee takeover in 1973, which is a long time ago now, right? Um, uh, during the uh, 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 the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, um, mm -hmm. Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse serve as inspiration because these individuals resisted to the very end. Um, uh, their insistence on protecting their people and their culture and, and true leaders of Lakotas, they live for their people. Uh, one of the virtues of Lakotas was uh, uh, generosity uh, and endurance and wisdom. And they truly lived and died for their people. So um, the Lakotas today, um, can thank Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull for fighting for their cultural survival. And, and I think they're very proud because like I said, um, they're, uh, they're mentioned uh, and they uh, are uh, in inspiring uh, for current protest uh, for social justice and for, again, protecting their sacred land, which uh, that Dakota Access Pipeline ties exactly into. I mean, that's what Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse were fighting for in the 1870s was to protect their land and their people. In the exact same place. In the exact same place, yes. Well, Mark, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you about this and I, and I really enjoyed your book. I think it's a, a really important piece to look at part of American history, but from the other perspective. Um, so if people wanna learn more about uh, the Indian Wars and, and, and the Great uh, Sioux War, um, and pick up a copy of your book, where can they go? Um, you know, any, uh, they can go to their favorite bookseller. Um, there's a, a page, harpercollins.com has a page devoted to my book and you can hit links uh, wherever you want to order it, uh, whatever your favorite uh, retailer is. You can even go to your local independent store and uh, many bookstores are carrying it. And if they don't, you can have them order it for you. Uh, so it's, it's pretty much out there uh, everywhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, you just go to that harpercollins.com. Uh, and what about you? Do you have a, a website as well? I do. My website is songofthewest.com. And I'm happy to answer emails. In fact, there's a, there's a page on there where people can contact me directly. And, uh, and I welcome that because I like to, I like to hear from readers and it helps me as a writer as well to hear comments and, um, and for my next book, uh, you know, I can hopefully incorporate uh, some of the things that people uh, noticed or found. By the way, my next book is a dual biography of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. Okay, I was, I was going to add, that was going to be my next question, if there were anything, anything coming down the pipe. Yeah, you know, everybody, we all know that they were friends, right? Yeah. But we, a lot of people don't really know, well, how did that friendship start? And, and what exactly was that relationship? They were such different individuals and their demeanor. And of course, you know, they were made famous by movies, uh, you know, whether it was Tombstone or Gunfight at the UK Corral. So we all know that they were friends, but no author has really gotten deep into that friendship. And so I hope, and it'll be a duel. I mean, I'll trace both their careers like I did with the Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. And uh, they do interconnect um, uh, just like Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. And so uh, I just started the research on, I've been to Tombstone a few times and uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into that. And um, it, it shouldn't take me five years. <laughs> this book took five years because 
I mean, as we pointed at the beginning, I mean, I was, that culture was completely foreign to me. Um, and so I had to do, I had to do a lot of, uh, a lot of learning. So uh, hopefully the doc and Wyatt won't take quite as long. Okay. Well, hopefully maybe we'll have you on again uh, when that one comes out. Great. I'd love to do it. Great. All right. Uh, well, Mark, thank you again for taking the time to uh, join us today. Um, really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Kevin. Let's do it again. Hi, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a little bit uh, about this piece of Western American history from a Native American perspective. Uh, big thank you to all the listeners uh, for checking out this episode. Uh, big thank you to Mark Gardner for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more uh, about Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, uh, and you want to pick up a copy of The Earth is All That Lasts, there is a link for it down in the description of this episode on your podcast app, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, and then Mark was kind enough to take an extra couple minutes to answer a bonus question, and that's available over on the show's Patreon page. Uh, looking forward to what else is uh, uh, around the bend here in fall. Uh, next week, uh, I'll be speaking with Catherine Stewart, uh, who's written a book uh, on the history of the rise of religious nationalism, uh, which is something that has kind of come to the forefront in American politics. Uh, and so I've gotten a little curious about where that comes from, uh, and Catherine is able to provide us a little bit of history. Uh, after that, getting into October, it's getting to be Halloween. Um, creepy things are upon us. Uh, and so I will be talking with a uh, historical fiction novelist. Uh, her name is Kim Taylor Blakemore, uh, and she has written a novel called The Deception, uh, which takes place during the spiritualist movement uh, of the mid to late 19th century. Uh, and so her protagonist is a medium who communicates with the dead. Um, and while this is a novel, this was a real movement, and it was a very popular, uh, popular trend in the uh, 1800s. So very excited to talk to her. And then looking a little bit further afield, uh, there's nothing set in stone. I've got a couple feelers out for a couple books related to history of movies. Uh, and then there's one uh, potentially about espionage during World War II uh, that I'm pretty excited about, but still got to finalize things there. So uh, thank you again for sticking with me for another episode. And I look forward to seeing you again next time.